Hello and welcome. Welcome back to Diverse Conversations. It's a pleasure to have you back here today. Uh, this is Ashka Patel. Thank you for joining me. And today, uh, continuing on with our conversation, which is the future of pharmacy, uh, I'm very excited to welcome our next guest, who is none other than Dr. Catherine Duggan, the CEO of the International Pharmaceutical Federation. Dr. Duggan took up the role in The Hague in June of 2018. Uh, she's responsible for visionary leadership, support, development and advocacy across the 4 million members that FIP represents. She's responsible for developing and de the delivery of um, the strategy, planning and working across global organizations such as the World Health Organization and the United Nations and other international professional groups. Upon taking up the role, um, Dr. Duggan was awarded an honorary professorship from the School of Pharmacy, University of Nottingham. She has been awarded fellowships of both the Arp Royal Pharmaceutical Society as well as the UCL School of Pharmacy and is a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. Until April 2018, Dr. Duggan was the Director of Professional Development at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society of, of the Great Britain, uh, where she was responsible for the delivery of professional advice and support to all members across all sectors. Um, Dr. Duggan has published wise, widely and represented at national and international meetings and has a wealth of people and program management experience. She's a recognized leader across the profession, working with many networks within and across the profession and more widely health and business. Dr. Duggan has worked in the community, primary care, hospital and academia. And uh, between 20, 2007 and 2009, Dr. Duggan was a chair of the United Kingdom Clinical Pharmacy Association and then an elected member of the Council of the uh, Royal Pharmaceutical Society, GB. Um, Dr. Duggan is an avid film lover, enjoys singing and traveling, fine wine, dining, sports and dancing. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Duggan to this conversation. Dr. Duggan, welcome, and thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation with us. Uh, you know, uh, I really see you as this visionary and inspiring leader in pharmacy, and to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you, I'm truly, truly grateful. Thank you so much for joining me today, and, um, you know, uh, welcome again. <laughs> it's a complete pleasure. Honestly, Aska, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of your podcast episodes, and I just hope that I live up to the expectations. Let's see. Oh, I'm sure you will. Uh, I'm sure um, I have no questions about it. Um, I think we have a lot to talk about today. Um, and I think what what I really wanted to get started off with, because you're a pharmacist by training as well, and you know, would love to hear your journey. Um, one of the things that we always try to explore is the different paths pharmacists can take uh, to build a career of their own. And I think your journey has been exemplary to that matter as well. And I would love to, I love it if you could share some, um, you know, some events and in, um, you know, in terms of what how did your journey pave the way to, you know, you taking the position as CEO at the International Pharmaceutical Federation? Well, the thing about your CV, Asker, is that um, a top tip will be that you can make it make sense and create a narrative around all of the career choices and decisions you've made along the way. Mm. Uh, we don't have to get it completely right all the way along. We don't have to always be having the dream job. We don't always have to pick the right job or make the right decisions sometimes the the um taking a bit of a chance along the way means you come across something you might not have predicted and that might fit you really really well in your career journey so that's for everybody who's starting out if i could talk to myself 20 30 years ago that would have helped me with quite a lot of anxiety that i would have had around am i making the right choices so the thing about me that is not well known is that um 
when I, 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 I had to retake my A-levels mm-hmm. to go into university and um, I got into pharmacy at the School of Pharmacy in the University of London in 1988 um, through a process called clearing. So I think what this taught me was that not everything might go to plan. You might not always um, get exactly the grades that you think. You might not always get the choice that you have first made, but that should not close down doors to you. You should be looking for the opportunities as they um, present themselves. And I'm really delighted with that because obviously I did my degree at the School of Pharmacy. And at the end of that degree, I did a pre-registration year in North London. Mm -hmm. At that time, Aska, they had just, I I was working in a hospital pharmacy, hospital pharmacy Uh pre-reg. And at that time, they just put in a couple of weeks experience in community. So during that year, I, um, oh, and another thing, during that year, I went to my first FIP Congress because I'd done a pre-reg project with some eminent colleagues on uh, pharmacists working in residential homes with the elderly. So we were looking at how we might help patients with their medicines. uh, And I went to Lyon in 1992. And then I was doing my pre-reg in that year. And um, I experienced both the hospital sector, which I loved. I loved all of that, you know, clinical understanding, application of knowledge. But then I had this experience in community and that community colleague blew my mind. He was working in um, an independent small community pharmacy in North London. And I basically shadowed him for two weeks and I just got this complete and utter insight into what exactly you could do as a community practitioner as well. So I feel like I had the best of both worlds. Now, another thing that really crossed my mind during that year was that a lot of the patients that I was seeing in the community could have been the patients that we were treating in the hospital the week before or in a couple of weeks. What I also noticed was that the community pharmacist and the hospital pharmacist were not routinely in conversation with each other about some of those medicines that may have changed. Yes. And around that time, if I tell you this is about the early 90s, there's this big movement called seamless care. Mm. And I just got very passionate about it. So I really wanted to do some research in that area. And I bid for a PhD there was no money to do PhDs at that time so I actually bid for a research grant in 1994 from the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and I was one of the first practice recipients of what was called the Hugh Linstead Award. This is a very very important little point Saskia because the whole of my life has been a set of coincidences. So I couldn't do that PhD full-time because the grant wasn't enough. So I worked in community and actually I started working in that community pharmacy one week on and one week off after Mm -hmm. a year. That wasn't feasible. So I worked in community. I worked in what was called primary health care, family health services associations at that time. And I also did um, some locum work. And at the time I was doing that because I needed to. But when I thought about it, at the end of the day, it really fed into my into my research work because I was working with community pharmacy dispensing and mm-hmm. talking to patients. Also, with some of the policy making in primary health care, I was working with how those pharmacists could be paid or remunerated or blah, blah, blah. Right. And then also with some of the other work longer term, going back into the hospital sector, I could see the full circle. I went back into hospital towards the end of my PhD, got a a big grant by then to do a a trial. 
And we looked at the effect of providing patients with information from their pharmacy on the medicines mm -hmm. versus those who didn't have that information to the community pharmacy. And what we found was that around three pounds in English money at that time, we prevented an error that would have caused uh, morbidity or even a death by misadventure. Wow. And that, that they had been judged by a panel that were not anything to do with pharmacy. They were t looking at the consequences of those medicines not having been changed or people taking double doses, etc. And I thought that was really powerful because it meant we were being verified by other professions and the community exactly. pharmacists simply just picked up the mantle and went and did their job. That's I then took up a, um, a joint appointment between School of Pharmacy and the Bots in the London at that time, which was the area I did my PhD in. Mm -hmm. And we followed up by creating research and training opportunities for students during their undergrad, the pre-regs, then with the early career pharmacists, and then with people doing masters, and then ultimately PhDs. Right. And I did modifications of that role until about um, 2006, 2007, and I took on a regional role then. And we were looking at management of rare drugs. About that time, ASCA, there was a big review in all health professions in the UK. It had happened as a result of a criminal uh, doctor, a doctor oh. found guilty of murdering patients called Harold Shipman. And of course, he was a GP held up in his community, very highly regarded, part of his professional body. Every, you know, everybody would have assumed he was an amazing mm -hmm. physician. So there was a big review on how could this have happened? Is right. there a way in which we can assess this? And of course, because there were medicines involved, right. as there always are, pharmacy was under scrutiny. So at that time, Royal Pharmaceutical Society, it was recommended that that be split, a new regulator mm -hmm. be set up and the RPS start becoming the professional body for pharmacy. Okay. I was chair of the Clinical Pharmacy Association at that time with my role in BARTS and in uh, School of Pharmacy. Wow. And at that time, I was asked to give evidence to this new, newly being formed uh, body mm -hmm. and I stood for election to that council. And um, then that was being split into two functions during 2010. I applied for a director position in the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, which I got, which was about supporting the profession, professional development and standards, and ASCA leading the research team and the yeah. science team within which was the very grant I'd got some years before. So there's a nice symmetry wow. to all of this. Um, we set up, we had so many things to set up and to um, put in place to support everyone in the profession. The mantra kind of being to be the best you can be. Mm -hmm. And uh, there've been a couple of changes of leadership. And also I'd taken on different roles within the RPS. I'd taken on double jobs. The position of FIP CEO came up around springtime um, 2017. Oh, wow. So I started to go for it and started to get quite excited. And um, yeah, I got appointed in January 2018 as the first female CEO of FIP. And of course, this year, four years in, uh -huh. my 30th anniversary of my first FIP I attended all that time ago. Oh, that's so, amazing. Now, on paper, that makes sense. Yes. But ask her. I had periods in, in my career where I didn't have enough money to do my PhD, so I had to take on part-time jobs. Yes. 
I didn't have enough money when I was starting in the research career afterwards. So I had to take a double appointments. It just so mm. happened they sat together very neatly. It just so happened that both parties that I was doing the jobs for could see the benefits of joining forces and finding synergies. It just so happened that I went for the clinical leadership role as the chair of the UK CPA and this massive seismic change was happening, happening yes. in our profession. It just so happened I then took on the directorship at RPSGB, which then became RPS, and that put me in a position to take on the FIP role. Wow. If somebody was to say to Catherine from 1992, do you know in two, 2022 you're going to be talking about four years as the first CEO, women's CEO, I would never have credited it. There's something about, uh, well, we'll come to this because you'll, yes. be full, you'll be full of questions, but there's something about taking an educated chance and not locking yourself into choices and feeling you have to stay there. I agree. Also, giving yourself a chance in a role yes. and finding out how you can benefit from it. And as I mentioned, that CV is yours. You can narrate it as long as it's truthful and factual yes. and not in any way embellishing. You can narrate that to make sense and create the person that you need to be. Absolutely. I am so grateful that you shared your journey because, um, you know, I think I can completely relate to your uh, feelings of uncertainty, not knowing, you know, where to go next, or am I making the right career move, right? Um, and I think that is very, very important. Um, and when you're younger, um, you know, I can I can definitely relate to this because it was not too far uh, ago that I kind of went through the same phase in my life where I was like deciding what do I want to do next? And, you know, you're applying for opportunities. It's not fitting in. But I also am a very firm believer that everything happens for a good reason. And you sometimes you just have to write it out to really understand. And in hindsight, it all makes sense. <laughs> it's just uh, at that point in time, it may not make sense. But, um, you know, thank you for sharing that. And I think what you talked about in terms of narrating um, you know, your journey uh, to kind of fit the picture. I think that that is critical because sometimes, oftentimes, we underestimate our own contributions and what we have done in our own experiences, especially um, I and you know, as a woman, I, I know I'm, I'm guilty of this because I, I, I have been notoriously doing this in terms of downmining my own um, achievements, however little they may be, but they need to be celebrated um, because if you celebrate them, you get motivated to pursue more and more such achievements. Uh, but if you're already downplaying it all the time, it makes it so much more difficult to boost yourself up to, you know, go and achieve that next milestone that you've set out for yourself. Um, and I think um, one other message that I got from um, the, from the journey you shared is, um, you know, around if you're not finding opportunities that you want, be brave to at least ask and create them if mm. needed. Mm. Um, and I think, um, you know, you seeking that funding, even though there was no funding for PhD, you went ahead and you still asked and proposed. And, you know, it was just the synchronicity afterwards. But I think at the same time, it was because you were driven to a cause which you genuinely felt like you wanted to do something about. I think everything kind of fell in place uh, for you well, to achieve that goal. This is the thing, Aska. Now, we've got quite a scientific profession. And yes. if you line us up against, let's say, the medics and the nurses who are, are bigger yes. than our profession, we're the third largest globally, but they are bigger. Uh -huh. If you're going to put characters around the professions, pharmacists can be quite um, introverted. And I don't mean they're shy and I don't mean they don't know their minds. Just, you know, quieter, getting yes. on with things, risk averse, managing things. Literally, I would call them the operationalists they, mm -hmm. they literally get everything done they 
they absolutely we are logisticians without yes. even blowing our trumpets but i agree <laughs> if you feel very uncomfortable with kind of selling yourself in a cv if you look to acknowledge all of the support and you've helped and help yes. you've heard from others you don't go far wrong yeah. and it also makes you realize that there were characteristics within yourself that helped you go and ask for some of that help exactly. so this has really helped me i'm a big chatterbox i'm very extrovert but that doesn't mean i don't have my insecurities and i don't have my worries and as i say i think it's really important for us as we get more mature in our careers, older, so to say, but don't ever use the word. Um, we have a real responsibility to mentor and support people. You've heard that phrase, don't put the ladder up behind yourself. Um, and actually part of that is confidence, yes. but not overconfidence Big. because our profession really respects and appreciates a hard worker who doesn't think too much of themselves, but also has the confidence to speak well of others and to position themselves within that. And I think that's a good rule of thumb. You know, you don't go Absolutely. far wrong if you're respecting others. And after I come from an Irish family and people would be saying, how are you getting on? And you might be very proud when you were little telling them this and that. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but don't, don't be, don't be too boastful. Mm. You know, don't, don't blow your own trumpet. So you ha I'm always conscious that there's this chatterbox in me, but I have to kind of downplay it a bit. Yes. So a bit of humility, it goes a long way. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think just the fact that you have been so open and, and, and honest in terms of even sharing, you know, your perspectives and itself speaks to your humility and, and, and you know, the the groundedness that you bring with yourself. And I think that's exactly what uh, we all um, inspire, get inspired from you by, right? It, it's those very <laughs> qualities. Because uh, uh, it's, you know, it's one thing to be a leader, but it's it's one thing to be a leader that takes everyone together and moves forward. Um, mm. There's a huge difference. And I think the world, right, now we're seeing that stark difference in in terms of mm. leadership styles as well right where where we're really able to pinpoint a good leader from a bad leader and and i think the world is oh like us... never before yes think, exactly I think, right know, i think we should use this there's not much good in the world at yes. the moment it feels unfortunately uh, we've got we've got a lot of uh, trauma going on not only yes. with wars and natural disasters but also with the post-pandemic long covid feeling and all of the ec economic stresses so you have to find a little bright spot and a little bright spot is to analyze the leadership you see yes. and to think about the traits that those people are exhibiting and having that own we're very good at analysis analysis in pharmacy so we should use that yes. even with leaders yeah i, I couldn't agree. agree with you more thank you thank you and i agree with you <laughs> In violent um, agreement here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but no, this is uh, like, you know, and, and again, like, you know, having a leader of your stature um, speak to this, uh, it really, you know, helps bring the point home. Um, I don't think anything else can bring it more home than what you just mentioned. Um, and I think I'll, I'm just going to switch gears a little bit because I also want to kind of, um, you know, take some time to also discuss some of the work that you're doing at FIP and, and you know, what's what's next at FIP, what has been happening, especially the pandemic, pandemic I'm sure sure it was busy times for um, just like the entire profession was um, busy helping patients on the front lines. I know FIP was not quiet and uh, there was a lot of work that was being done. And if we could share a little bit about the work that FIP engages in, especially during the pandemic and, you know, what are some of the things that are coming up next? So I think the pandemic meant that every single thing that FIP knew to be normal was turned on its head. But 
for everybody that was the case. The one thing I would say, Asker, is that none of my team work on the front line. Mm. So that kind of put a fire in our bellies and made us think, you know, we just need to work super hard for that profession who is out on the front line. And I mean that. I mean the community pharmacists who stayed open when all other primary health care providers closed, mm-hmm. our hospital pharmacists, those working in industry and pharmaceutical science. What about our academics? What about those working in military and emergency pharmacy or in administrative policy making ro- roles? Yeah. Every single member of our profession stepped up and didn't even question it. And that gave me the, I, I suppose, gave me the like the, the moral high ground to make sure the team stepped up. And right. boy, did they. They really did. So, Aska, just to walk you back a little bit. So, um, FIP is really the sum of an amazing set of volunteers, expertise and experience. And being a CEO, it's the best job in the world because you can avail of all of that wonderful uh, knowledge and create bonds and linkages between projects that then flow into people. Mm-hmm. and so that that's just a piece of magic but of course for the last nearly three years we haven't had people in a room together so we really had to try our best now I joined in June 2018 right in the October of that year there was a con- convert conference run by WHO in the United Nations in Kazakhstan and um it was celebrating the 40th year of primary health care all nations and professions had signed the commitment, the Alma Ata commitment in 1978. So Mm -hmm. in 2018, it was the 40th anniversary. There, everyone was going, we've done pretty well. Look at maternal health, look at child mortality, marvellous. And then, "Mm." but we haven't done so well with lifestyle induced diseases and mortality, or, you know, we might not catch so much bear in mind that was 2018 not 2020 we might not be catching so much that kills us but we sure as hell are doing enough to our bodies to kill ourselves you know really interesting conversations so there we took the opportunity to sign pharmacy up Mm. literally we will be part of um the primary health care agenda to deliver universal health coverage wow we understand that's a political term in many countries and many Mm -hmm. countries don't believe in universal health coverage but we do and we are all about advancing pharmacy worldwide so this all fitted together so then ask her the next piece was so how are we going to demonstrate we could do that Mm -hmm. at that time we thought we're going to have a health minister summit at the end of my president's tenure which would have been this year Mm -hmm. we've moved that to next year so the plan is we get the health ministers of the world together with members from their uh, nations, pharmacists, Mm -hmm. to show evidence of impact against three big domains of work. The first is NCDs. We know know United Nations speak about five. They have mental health, cancer, respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Mm -hmm. But we actually know in pharmacy, you deal with all of them. Some people have all of them at once. Some people have a couple of those and dementia or Parkinson's and, and, and. Yes. Then we have the safety agenda um, from how a drug is developed and then formulated and manufactured and supplied. And what do you do with shortages? What do you do with substandard and falsified medicines? What do you do um, when medicines have been contaminated or, you know, how do we manage repurposing or all of those things? Safety, big bundle. And the last one was prevention. Three big buckets of work. And the prevention agenda can be from self-care all the way through to immunization. Wow. So we thought, 
next thing to do is to build on the pharmaceutical workforce development goals that had been launched in 2016. They in turn were um, a response to the human resources for health work where the WHO was saying, hey, we're gonna have a shortage of health workers by 2030. They were predicting 18 million at that time. And pharmacy, um, my other half, Ian Bates, he started the whole work on pharmaceutical workforce development goals. Mm -hmm. And they aligned to that work. They were launched in 2016. And when we signed up to the Astana Declaration, we thought, hang on, those goals are great, but they are particularly focused on education and workforce. Can we, can we build them up a little bit? Yes. And spread them out a little bit. Can we do some others on top that may have been missing? And then we've got a cohesive set of goals that cross all of FIT. Mm -hmm. So we launched those goals and then we will be having the evidence of impact presented to the health ministers next year. In 2020, the pandemic hit. We focused all our work on prevention and supporting the profession through the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. The next year, last year, we built NCDs on top. This year, it's safety on top. We're using our global pharmaceutical observatory to gather all the evidence of impact from our nations right and in addition we've set up so the anniversary the fourth anniversary of astana is end of october this mm -hmm. year that same week it's the thousandth day living with covid so we're presenting 10 sets of 100 day blocks with details of what fip have done each 100 day right and then collating what our members have done, what they've told us. And then those members can take that forward and showcase what they've done. And we felt, Asker, it was really important before we learn for the next pandemic that we just pause, reflect, and think about all those steps. Because as I, I say, the profession just stepped up, stepped in. It hasn't stopped since. People mm -hmm. are very fatigued. If yes. you start talking about the next pandemic, I think people will cry, literally cry. But if you start to show them how they responded step by step by step by step my goodness me it was quite the journey and the profession was stretched we were stretched we did holding statements like here's a policy monday we we launched it by friday we had to change it yes. this has never happened to us in our world we shared examples from italy within europe because the rest of europe was catching italy up unfortunately yes. we were able to showcase and share where countries um, maybe relaxed regulations so we could create a regulatory regulatory toolkit. Asker, it would normally take us a year, 18 months to create a toolkit. We did one in three weeks wow. with the regulators from the world. This was phenomenal. Yes. Phenomenal. The response, the fact that we didn't always, oh, how can I put this in a very, I want to put it in the most elegant way right. possible. We sought to get everything as right as possible. But we also knew that the evidence was just shifting day by day. The data was shifting. Experience was shifting. Papers got published in the Lancet and then withdrawn. Yes. You know, we knew. So this gave us this weird opportunity. Instead of getting everything right, we got everything right for now. Yes. And that's been a big lesson for my team. And we're now, we're not going to go back to the old way. Our digital events, we have maintained and sustained attendance it's phenomenal. Not only that, but it gives us a reach into countries which can't particularly afford to travel right. or to attend very swanky congresses. Mm -hmm. So we will always do that now. Exactly. And then we will always do what our members need us to do. And then we will always do more for the individuals, but we will make sure that that provision is there for everyone. 
I agree. Like, I think that's fantastic. Uh, you know, there are definitely a lot of learning points. And I have to say, I actually joined FIP during the pandemic. So I actually, um, you know, my exposure to FIP kind of came during a time of chaos, utter chaos in the entire world. Uh, but I think um, at the same time, I found uh, work that I can truly resonate with and, and uh, you know, that I knew that I had an impact. And thank you for sharing that. And I really look forward to, um, you know, hopefully the, the 100 day blogs would be uh, available and you know available to the public because I, I really do feel like that needs to be shared um, so that everyone can really reflect back because I think we have forgotten that part because we have been kind of so zoned in trying to just do whatever the day demands from us to do that we have forgotten what those last two years look like and what we have accomplished um, together as a profession and I think that would be a fantastic reminder for us and a pat on the back uh, but but also you know I think it has brought in our community together more so than it has ever in the past. Um, even the scientific community to a point has also started acknowledging, um, you know, uh, the impact pharmacy as a profession, and this is not just pharmacists, but like, you know, our professionals and, and our scientists that bring to the table uh, when it comes to, like there were times where drug shortages were such a big thing, right? who were they relying on to kind of come up with all these formulations and emergency replacements? And, you know, what do we replace it with? It was pharmacists and, and pharmacy professionals. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing at FIP. And I, I'm, I'm really looking out for that, um, you know, that video once once it's ready uh, to be published, because I think it's going to be a great one. And since we're in this line of um, celebrating pharmacy and the achievements of it, what do you think has been the biggest achievement for pharmacy professionals during the pandemic? Well, I think the thing I mentioned earlier on about our character, yes. you know, our trait as a profession is not one that seeks the limelight. Mm. But Aska, by, by accident, the other lights went out yes. on every high street in every community. There were only food shops and pharmacies open. Mm -hmm. So de facto, the limelight was on the profession. And because it wasn't like a campaign or something cheesy or something, you know, where you had to act cool, uh, the profession just got on and did what it did and right. adapted every week, you know, making hand sanitizers and creating the zones where people could zigzag up and down the, yes. the aisles. Every single thing, um, people who hadn't known the value of the pharmacy beforehand would be coming in and talking about my mum in a care home or my child who um, is getting withdrawn from being out of school. Yes. The, the impact of that, and, you know, I'm speaking of the community pharmacist, but there were similar stories about pharmacy everywhere. I agree. Means that the profession inhabited the limelight without even noticing. And the advocacy that has been done within our communities is second to none. I always said this, that, until you need a pharmacy, you don't know how valuable a pharmacy is. Yes. But now I think uh, health services understand the investment that is made in a pharmacy in a community with all those medicines there. Can you tell me, Aska, that were there any scandalous drug shortages throughout the whole of the pandemic? No, no, nothing more than usual. Exactly. In fact, possibly even better because pharmacists just did it. Exactly. So by just doing it, not faking it, not pretending, not play acting, just doing the job, putting the patients in the community and the hospital and the, the students and the medicines, wherever you are working, putting that first and foremost, it has put us into the limelight. Now the thing is, let's not waste that opportunity. I agree. I absolutely agree on that. And, and you know, it's... Um... 
couldn't have said it better. I, I really like the the analogy you provided about the limelight and the, the lights being off. And I think um, that's going to stick with me for a very long time to come. So thank you for that. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that we're trying to do with this podcast is also understand, like, you know, the future of our profession, like where are we headed as a profession collectively? Um, and, you know, um, when I had interviewed Larsh um, in, in my previous interviews, one of the things we had discussed was around a strategy for our profession, you know, five to 10 years down the road, what does that strategy look like? What does that vision look like in terms of what do we want to achieve as a profession? And I think, um, you know, I, I've, I would place that same question onto you is like, you know, if we were to create a 10 year strategy for a profession, what would be our like top three strategic priorities that you would like to achieve or, you know, you would like to kind of set for a profession to achieve? So I think Asuka, there's some really good words here. What we're about to do, if you remember, when I, when I came into post, yeah. I was asked to sign off the strategic plan, which would take us to 2014. Mm -hmm. So you have your strategy, you have your vision, your mission, and you have your strategic imperatives. And then COVID comes. Yes. And you've got a Congress that can't happen. You know, everything can turn upside down. So my advice would be that you have a vision and a mission and you have strap lines like advancing pharmacy worldwide which just isn't going to get old it isn't going to go off doesn't need to be refrigerated and what you do instead is you set yourself a roadmap mm. if you set yourself a roadmap for the decade ahead you can shift direction you can take a pit stop if you need right. to you can go on the fast road if you're ready for it you can take the scenic route if there's an accident on the fast road if you take my analogy Yes. And a roadmap or a route map provides you with that flexibility that enables you to get where you needed to get to, mm. but you're not being so specific about the plan. Mm. That said, having a business plan that you can then adapt and shift. And maybe if it's over a year or two, that really helps you too, because you can plan your work. But COVID's really brought into light the fact that if you're too rigid about your strategy and you're mm -hmm. too rigid about your planning, then you're really left stuck yes. when a massive crisis happens. And that would be my advice to everybody. So we've got the goals. We published them in 2020. Mm -hmm. Last year, we had 21 events for all of the goals. This year, we're going to be publishing the roadmap that takes us to 2030. Mm. And the reason why we're doing that to 2030 is, number one, it's far enough away. So you can think big. Yes. And we need to think big. You need to bring the profession some, a little bit of joy, a little bit of positivity that it's going to get better. Agreed. But also they align politically with the sustainable development goals from mm -hmm. WHO and the UN. Right. And that means we've got some political traction. Mm -hmm. And then if you track back and you've got some anchor points like 2023 as our health minister summit, that will set the direction for the next couple of years after that. And then the next couple. So you're always able to say where you're headed, mm -hmm. but, I can tell you, by the time we get to 2025, we'll set another decade roadmap. And yes. it won't mean that the 2031 was wrong. It just means it's going to be coming into sharper focus mm -hmm. so you can pinpoint those destinations a bit more. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you for sharing that, Catherine. I appreciate that. Um, and with that, I guess my, my next question is, since we're talking of 2030, uh, you know, how do you see the future of pharmacy, um, as, especially like, you know, for pharmacy professionals and, and just overall, like, you know, how do you see the future uh, for the profession? The wonderful thing about FIP that makes it look complicated from the outside is the fact that our profession has so many different sides and faces and, and opportunities. 
And why do I say that's wonderful? Because it could look very confusing to mm -hmm. someone who isn't a pharmacist. But as you mentioned it right at the very beginning, this profession that we've entered into, um, it really provides you with everything you would need for your professional life. You can change direction. Yes. You can move between sectors. You can even create niche jobs. We're going to be needed forever because, mm -hmm. you know, people aren't getting any younger and people need medicines. We've, we've found that out. And also medicines are amazing. Yes. The amount of transference of knowledge from those mRNA vaccines into other infectious diseases that we have not been able to vaccinate against, like HIV or malaria, also into the cancers and understanding immunotherapy is probably the way forward for all of our organic diseases. Seriously, that overplay. Yes. And then how are those drugs going to be manufactured? How are they going to be safely manufactured? Mm -hmm. What's the formulation? What about if one needs to cross the blood-brain barrier? Who knows that stuff? We do. Exactly. And it may be asked that you'd need to do a little bit of a refresher mm -hmm. if you are moving from one sector to the other. Your rucksack, your professional acumen in your rucksack is there for you. You've had exposure to, you've had experience of, and you've got knowledge of little bits of everything and quite a lot of quite a lot. So as a profession, I feel if we can get recognized as intrinsic to the universal health coverage piece mm -hmm. across our nations, we get recognized as the third biggest health profession and the biggest employer of health workforce globally. Yes. Seriously, Aska, there is nothing stopping our profession. And that will give our early career pharmacists some of that, you know, that rocket fuel to fly. And it will give colleagues in the mid-career an opportunity to think, am I happy where I am? Yes. Would I like to go sideways? Would I like to go up? Would I like to go sideways because I just need to change and my whole life is very stressful? Because middle life is very stressful. Mm -hmm. or, and then also for our elder states people. How can they mentor and support us and teach us the lessons they've learned? Because my goodness me, if we think we're going through tough times, they've been through them all. I and agree. I, I really think pharmacy, you know, you can write, you can make drugs, you can take different sectors of work, you can teach, you can help, you can support, you can run businesses, you can set up startups. Yes. You know, the entrepreneurial spirit, as well as the deeply scientific rigor, rigor is quite unique. Agreed. Thank you so much for sharing that. Wow, you've given me a boost. <laughs> um, and I mean, I, I truly enjoy being a pharmacist. And, you know, in, in I closed my eyes, I would have never thought of doing anything else. And, you know, I decided actually, like, you know, when I started my journey, um, I was wanting to become a physician, immigrated to Canada and got exposed to pharmacy as a real, you know, um, I would say coincidence because it was not even looking for something like that, but it was just helping out to gain some volunteer hours. And um, I'm, and, you know, I've never looked back since. And, you know, pharmacy has always been my calling after that point onwards. Uh, but this profession, rightly, as you said, um, Catherine, gives you so much versatility, so much. Uh, and I think we're being, be, as you mentioned, like, you know, we're being noticed now for what we are contributing to our healthcare systems. And I think 
the asks are going to be more and more as we move forward, um, you know, where and we will continue to prove them because I think we've already been doing this work for years. Uh, I think now it's just that we're actually putting it on paper with evidence to kind of back the work and the impact that we have, be it from community, hospital, long-term care, whichever setting you want. I think we're able to demonstrate that impact. So, you know, we'll be definitely keeping all of us, uh, you know, our, ourselves busy for the next few years. That's for sure. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> our work is not done. Let me tell you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and, and I think uh, what the pandemic has also, you know, shown a lot lot of bureaucrats is, you know, we are not just pill dispensers as a common social, you know, image that is often um, formed when you when you think of the word pharmacy and pharmacist. I think we have shown that we can we are we are so much more beyond that, like, you know, we are able to provide immunizations, we are able to do testing prescribing and and like the list is just getting bigger and bigger and as you rightly mentioned just i think we're just on the cusp of a major revolution again in terms of drug therapy uh, moving forward and i think pharmacists will play a very critical role in helping patients navigate this new world with new medications with the way they work um, i think pharmacists will be critical so thank you so much for for that boost um catherine really appreciate that um and i think my next uh my next question for you then is we obviously with every achievement there's always some setbacks and some challenges and um, you know, what are some challenges or headwinds you see for a profession as we, you know, navigate towards the future that you just described to us? Well, I think the thing, the thing that we run the risk of, um, Asker, is that um, we view ourselves as singular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of the recent awful things that are happening in the world, like, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, yes. shows that we are a global community. Mm-hmm. Many people don't want this at the moment. You can see that the politics is becoming very divisive. But if you think about pharmacy being a global profession and you think about the countries that have made advancements in particular areas, whether it be scientific advancements or service advancements or um, new outreach opportunities or changing regulations, Mm -hmm. even, even if they're really specific or even if they're really massive, if those aren't shared across the world, then we're allowing those that are more advanced to stay more advanced. And the inequity and inequality between those that haven't had those opportunities becomes even bigger. Yeah. So I, I take the idea that pharmacy has to um, really reflect some of the issues we've seen heightened through the pandemic, where those that had did okay, those that mm. didn't have did even worse. So the, the gap became wider. Yes. Now, if you can imagine if we provided, if FIP provides this network, this platform of sharing, enabling, offering people an opportunity to learn, pick up nuggets, pick up top tips, even things like advocacy toolkits or letters to ministries. Um, your country is different to another country, mm-hmm. but the profession, the professional elements can be very, very transferable. Mm. And if we really want to avail of the opportunities we've just mentioned, then it's about being politically savvy, being compelling, being ready and being enabled. And if you are all of those things, you're going to be able to respond to your health ministry's crisis. Every single country, doesn't matter the income level, every single country is now in an econ- economic, economically worse off than they were before the pandemic. Yes for one reason or another. 
Agreed. And their health resources are going to be even stra more stretched. So pharmacy can become part of the solution, remunerated, ensuring sustainable services, then we are in. Yes. And if we can learn from each other, share experiences, share top tips, then we will not miss this opportunity. The health ministry's eyes are open looking at pharmacy at the moment. The worst thing that could happen would be, oh, I'm just getting the evidence absolutely correct for you. Yes. Um, I'll be there next year, okay? I'll come to you, I'll come to your office in maybe a couple of years' time with a proposal for how we might be able to be funded to do a pilot. No. No. No, no, no. Got to be more COVID about this. Agree. We've got to take a chance. Don't wait for it to be perfect. Jump in. Use an example from another country. Show how they've done it. Get them excited. Get them invested. And then we respond. And then if we've got other colleagues to help and support you, you will do it. Absolutely. And that's what we need to do. And that's what we're hoping Seville will bring. A very different feeling at the Congress. Yes. Much more mm, togetherness if you like, but really just all about sharing. You know, the, when the, when it's all, when it's all at the end of the day, Aska, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how much you've done on your own. If you haven't shared it and no one knows about it, it's worth nothing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, so the profession only... can just get so much more if we yeah. just share it around a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I firmly believe knowledge, uh, you actually increase your knowledge by sharing. Um, and you're not just then like, you know, becoming not more knowledgeable yourself, but you're also helping share that knowledge. So somebody else is also learning from that experience as well. I, I couldn't have said it better, Catherine. And in the interest of time, I also want to make sure that, um, you know, I get to some very fun questions because I know uh, this has been uh, some of the fun questions that I wanted to kind of leave it to the last uh, point. Uh, but you know, FIP has done some really great initiatives uh, in terms of boosting the morale of the profession throughout the pandemic. And I commend FIP for that. Um, you know, one such was the FIP Wise Rising Stars. Uh, thank you so much for considering me. As Congratulations, one of Aska. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. No, nothing to do with FIP. It's your peers. Thank We're just you. delighted to be able to reward you with that. Thank you very much. It just means a lot. And, and I, I, I can tell you firsthand, you know, um, not that, you know, recognition stops me from like, you know, or lack of recognition stops me from doing the work that I'm doing, but I think it definitely keep adds that boost. And I'm kind of wrapping this up, um, you know, as you mentioned during the beginning of the conversation, sometimes you feel lost and sometimes you wonder what the work that you're doing is actually reaching or is impacting, mm -hmm. creating the impact that you were like, you know, that you envisioned for it to create. And um, thank you so much for that. Uh, but if you could um, kind of speak to that a little bit, but I also want to um, also, you know, discuss the FIP Congress, which you mentioned uh, is going to be in several this year. Um, if you can also speak to that a little bit as well, because I know it's coming up very soon. I uh, would love to hear a bit more about that. So in case any one of the listeners want to join the con Congress, um, you know, they would still have plenty of time to join. <laughs> they will indeed. The, the thing that we're doing this year is we've really streamlined it because it's the first in-face Congress. It will be three years since Abu Dhabi. Wow. And we've made sure that we've got big plenary sessions and then fewer parallel sessions in the afternoons so that we have bigger groupings, mm. more people together, more sharing of the experiences and no business meetings going on at the same time. Right. So every volunteer can really appreciate it as well as every attendee. And it's really going to be a showcase of many elements. Of course, there'll be a massive focus on COVID, what we've learned through it, but also 
how the profession has responded in humanitarian ways to the yes. current wars and, and crises that we see. And I also think an awful lot of opportunity for people to learn about the various initiatives we're trying to create evidence of impact against. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's slightly shorter than usual. Right. It's a day shorter. Okay. Um, and we're just, we're going to do a big appraisal of what works and what works even better than normal, because this has given us that opportunity. I think, Asuka, the thing is, imagine being in a room and imagine having just a few speakers, but then a panel discussion. And imagine using some of the technology that we've been able to um, really get quite expert in mm -hmm. to be able to interact when you're in the audience, but with the stage as well. Wow. If we can try some of these things, I think some of the cultures that feel less able to be noisy and mm -hmm. chatty can feel as engaged as the cultures that really want to get up on the stage and do some presenting. Absolutely. And we're just going to try some new things. We're going to set up a whole load of commitments and calls to action that then we can hold the profession to account, which means everybody can put their name to something and then feel like that golden thread of belonging is there. And then lots and lots of opportunities at the stands to be able to come and engage and see what the programs are. And maybe you never know, some of the recognitions of rising stars, established comets of excellence. <laughs> and then, you know, some of our amazing colleagues who just deserve all the recognition they can get. Um, I think I'm really excited about it. And I'm really excited if we can get that slightly relaxed, super fun vibe going, mm -hmm. because then I think it will give this real sense of coming together that the profession we believe the profession really really needs we've really missed each other and oh, it's time to get together absolutely i couldn't have uh, i actually really look forward to this experience as well i um, mean you know when i attended the first fip congress it was the first virtual one in 2020 um it was because it was my first exposure to fip and if that has anything in terms of it being a precursor to what this congress awaits i'm, I'm certain and absolute certain that this congress would be a you know a thousand times better just because you're now able to meet people in person and interact with them just as you mentioned even if you're joining in online uh but i'll i'll definitely put in the link to the FIP Congress in the description Thanks, box so that um, anyone who wishes to sign up, you know, follow that link. It'll take you in. And I believe early bird prizes are still going on. So if, if that's yeah. of an interest, I believe until July the 25th, Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, but... <laughs> that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, then just get in touch with us and we'll be happy to see you there. Perfect. Fantastic. Thank you, Catherine, for that. And and with that, I'm going to wrap up the co uh, conversation uh, with one last question. Um, so we talked about the Congress, but I also know that, you know, just like myself, there might be somebody out there who is wishing to get involved with FIP. And, in you know, is there, if you can just speak to that a little bit in terms of what does the process look like and how can they get involved and what opportunities are there for them? There's several ways to get involved. I mean, you can become an individual member yourself. You can uh, contact us with an area of interest or particular specialty. We have special interest groups. We have sections or, you know, your home of practice. Mm -hmm. We have forums and commissions around technology, regulations, antimicrobial resistance, data. All of those are up for grabs. We're reforming our workforce development hub into the FIP development hub, which basically houses and supports projects against each of the development goals oh. so if there's one of those goals that you really are interested in mm -hmm. then you know get involved there's other ways you can get involved through mentorship schemes 
being part of our young pharmacist group or being part of some of the sections or the boards and the formal structures. Yes. So I would say if you want to dip your toe, then get involved in a project. If you want to um, get a little bit more formally involved, then become an officer and um, your member organization, encourage them to become a member of FIP and then you will get a mini benefit. But then also, if you want to develop yourself personally, invest in that individual membership, uh, which is less than 100 euros a year, um, which I believe for what you get is very good value. I know that that's a lot of money to a lot of people, but it's also the opportunity then to come together at Congress with a bit of a discount and to meet your chums. I mentioned, Aska, I did my first FIP Congress in Lyon in 1992. And there is something about some of my best and dearest friends have been met along the international pathway. And we were able to celebrate lots of of our personal um, parties with many of those international charms. I cannot recommend it enough. I mean, honestly. And for me to have the job is just the cherry on the cake because... Our profession internationally, I can guarantee you will walk away with dear friends, good colleagues, great acquaintances, and a huge set of inspiration. You'll be on cloud nine leaving that Congress. I can guarantee you, Aska. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Catherine, for that. And I, I mean, I can attest to, uh, you know, being an individual member myself, I can definitely let you like, you know, anyone who's interested in that, please do consider that because the opportunities you get not just to develop yourself, but also to get involved in the work that, you know, that you find meaning to, um, it is is way worth uh, the worth of it cannot be described in numbers. Um, and, you know, I, I personally can attest to that. So if you need to speak about that, you know, contact, um, contact me as well, if um, I'm happy to also share any insights I may have. But as Catherine mentioned, FIP teams available and ready to speak to you if you need to join or have any questions about joining. With that, Catherine, I'm going to wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I do know uh, where you are at in London. This is quite late when we're recording this, but thank you so much for your flexibility. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, the pearls you have shared, um, they're going to stick with me for years to come. And um, you are you have definitely inspired me to continue to do the work that I'm doing. And if not, um, you know, uh, increase the impact that I may be able to over the t- over the time once I gain more skills um, and and leadership skills. Well, it's a pleasure, and honestly, I think I'm the one in the reflected glory from a rising star from FIP. Oh. It's been an honour, honestly, Aska. And as you've noticed, I don't have any problem chatting about stuff. Yes. What I hope is that it has been useful to you, useful to others, and I look forward to meeting you and greeting you in Seville. absolutely absolutely thank you so much and with that we're going to sign off and stay tuned for our next episode details for the fip congress will be linked in the description box below so feel free to check that out Um, and you can always reach Catherine on linkedin if that's something that you wish to connect with her for as well okay with that bye-bye